Welcome everyone to our third installment of the 2021 uh, Spotlight Series uh, sponsored by the Kenny Forum Illinois and all of our sponsors of our event today. I want to thank them. I want to thank, of course, our, our staff and board of directors at the Kenny Forum Illinois who've done so much to advance our common agenda. I'd like to um, also thank our panelists. We really have an extraordinary group of uh, panelists, uh, so much um, talent in their respective areas, all contributing to the greater whole. I want to especially shout out my, my wife, Amy, who's been uh, my greatest educator in uh, the real impact of untreated mental health in the classroom as a 14-year-old, 14-year uh, veteran of uh, uh, public education. Uh, she's seen it up close. And uh, I think today's um, forum is really an opportunity to figure out how do we support teachers like her, other uh, folks that are on the front lines of school-based mental health and children's mental health. Uh, for as uh, the old African proverb says, if uh, you don't want to have to fish as many people out of the river, you've got to make sure not as many fall in. Or as the late great uh, Frederick Douglass said, uh, it's easier to build a strong boy than to, to uh, fix a broken man. Um, you know, I just have to say that, you know, the Kennedy Forum was, was really started on the 50th anniversary of President Kennedy's signing of the Community Mental Health Act. And I really wanna emphasize community because we all know our mental health and addiction systems are so fragmented to begin with, but there's perhaps no place where it's more fragmented than the area of children's mental health. And I think the one takeaway from today is that we really need a community approach. Uh, we need all stakeholders pulling together. It's the only way we have any chance of wrapping our arms around this problem and wrapping our arms around these young children and their families who are so much a part of today's discussion, even though we're focusing on, on the children because both are part of the same whole. Um, with that, I'm, I'm honored to turn it over to today's uh, moderator, Susie Ahn, and thank her for her uh, being our moderator today. And again, thank all of the panelists for their participation. I hope everyone enjoys uh, today's program. Thank you, Patrick, and thank you for bringing us all together today. Um, as Patrick mentioned, I'm Susie Ahn. I am an education reporter for WBEZ Chicago. I cover education and I focused on the impact of COVID-19 over the past 18 months. I'm excited to lead this important conversation as many students, families, and schools are in the middle of returning to in-person learning for the first time since March 2020. That includes my own second grader who uh, had his first day today. Um, first, I want to get some housekeeping out of the way. Um, I encourage all of you who have logged in to share in the chat box where you're coming from today and throughout our time together, feel free to share any thoughts or ideas in the chat. Uh, we want you to have the chance to interact with the panel and each other. Um, we'll also use the chat box to share links throughout the conversation, so keep an eye on that. And if you have any questions for our panelists, we will have a few minutes at the end of the conversation to respond. So please use the Q&A function on the right hand side of your screen. 
Next, we'll have poll questions for the audience this afternoon. We encourage you to participate in those polls to help us better understand your perspective. And finally, the Kennedy Forum will follow up with participants with resources as well as a link to this recording. We're confident you'll find the conversation valuable and, and encourage you to share with all the students, teachers, and parents in your life. Now, I'd like to introduce our panelists for today's conversation. You can also find a full bio of our panelists in the lower half of your screen. First is Amy Kennedy, Director of Education for the Kennedy Forum. In this role, Amy pursues partnerships and collaborations that emphasize evidence-based research and programming to facilitate policy change in the areas of education and mental health. Last year, Amy ran for Congress in New Jersey's 2nd District. She's a former public school teacher and mother of five. Next is Dr. Janice Beal. She's a researcher, clinician, author, and behavioral expert. Her leadership and administrative experiences include president of Beale Counseling Associates and Beale Behavioral Health. Currently, she's contracted as a mental health expert for the Steve Fund, where she serves as the program director for the Wellbeing in Color, a peer mental health educational program and support groups for students of color. And this unique program will reach over 600 students in Houston and New York City. Next is Juan Salgado, Chancellor of the City Colleges of Chicago. As Chancellor, he oversees Chicago's community college system, serving nearly 70,000 students across seven colleges. He's been nationally recognized for his work, including as a 2015 MacArthur Fellow. And last but certainly not least is Chicago Public Schools Interim CEO, Dr. Jose Torres. Dr. Torres is a veteran educator with decades of leadership experience. He began serving as interim CEO for Chicago Public Schools on July 1st of this year. He previously served the district as a regional superintendent between 2006 and 2008, overseeing schools in Inglewood, West Inglewood, Chatham, Grand Crossing, and Auburn Gresham. Now, I want to get started with our first topic, uh, the mental health challenges before the pandemic. Everyone here knows the importance of childhood development and that a supportive environment leads them to a fulfilling adult life. But many of our young people were falling behind even before COVID-19. According to the World Health Organization, mental health conditions account for 16% of the global burden of disease and injury in people aged 10 to 19 years old. And half of all mental health conditions start by age 14, but most cases are undetected and untreated. Additionally, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, suicide is the second leading cause of death in the U.S. for those between the ages of 10 to 24. So that leads us to the first poll question. Who or what is responsible for the mental health of students and young people? Is it parents, students, educational institutions, communities, or all of the above? And while you're weighing in on that, I want to turn to our panel. Uh, Amy Kennedy, let's start with you. Uh, why do you think there has been such a disparity in mental health supports for students and young people? Well, as you said, Susie, I mean, this is nothing new. Unfortunately, youth mental health was crisis before the pandemic, and now it's more urgent than ever of students receiving mental health services, most receive those services in schools, making schools the most widely accessed mental health delivery system by children and adolescents. Students of color, LGBTQ students, disproportionately receive services only at school. 
So we have a lot of work to do. School represents an enormous opportunity to strengthen mental health safety nets around youth, but it it is certainly not what it could be. And it should be a safe and supportive environment for students who do not have outside means for ensuring social and emotional well-being. Unfortunately, schools having mental health supports and services uh, is it's just too often the exception and not the rule. Mental Health America recently released a report that highlighted the inadequacy of what our schools are doing for mental health. It found that 30 states lack even a basic requirement that education on mental health be included in the curriculum. We require all teenagers to take driver's ed if they want to drive a car, but we don't give youth the basic tools they need to navigate life. So we're going to share a link to that report in the chat box. It's really fantastic look at what each state is doing. And it's critical that all schools embrace social emotional learning or SEL. As a side note, Castle, which is based here in Chicago, has done amazing work for years showing why SEL is so critical and helping students integrate SEL into their curricula and cultures. School also needs to be implementing MTSS, which is multi-tiered systems of support. It really just means that they should have primary prevention, basic interventions for majority of the students, secondary intervention for students who need extra help, and then tertiary supports for the smallest subset of students who are having the greatest needs. For this third tier of support, schools need to have relationships with outside providers to be successful. It's really the gold standard for what we ultimately want to see. And Dr. Beal, I want to turn to you. Um, you know, there are millions of children and young people across the country that, that go to school in the hopes of a brighter future, of course. But when it comes to mental health, as, as uh, Amy mentioned, it appears that we don't reach many of them in their schools. And, and if we do reach some students, there can be serious issues of inequality. Is reaching young people in schools even the right approach? Um, and and why do you think we haven't done a better job of it? Well, I agree that it is the right approach to reach students in schools because of the fact that's where they are. Students spend eight hours a day with teachers and in the academic environment within schools. So therefore, teachers have them much longer than their parents have them at home. So it's important that we are in that during the time that they are supposed to learn the best and all the things that are supposed to take place and they're ready to be able to be active listeners, quote unquote. But traditionally, schools have not had the opportunity to be able to provide mental health services because the lack of knowledge or the stigma that's associated with it. So it has to come down from the principal and all of the administrators and the teachers. And we don't want to expect the teachers to be mental health professionals because that's not what they're there for. But they are on the front line to be able to identify if a child has a, a problem and presents with a problem. Now, when they do that, though, and I'll try to make this very brief, the process of getting them services takes a long time. And that's where the concern is. We, you know, I think teachers have to observe them for a certain amount of time, especially where I am, before they're able to actually refer, and unless there's an immediate crisis, where which means if there's a suicidal um, ideation or something of that nature or a fight or something that's brought them to the attention. So I think that yes, the schools are, are a great place. Uh, we need to, I guess, put more emphasis in the schools to give them the resources in order to be able to help from a mental health perspective. Uh, without those resources, we are just talking. 
again, we're not actually doing anything and making changes. Uh, Amy's quoted how many children are actually diagnosed by the age of 14, and that's 50% of the population. So if you have a classroom of 10, that's half of that number. So I, I think that reaching schools, uh, reaching children in school, you know, is a very good place. Now, the reason why it hasn't been very helpful in the past were some of the things I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, the lack of resources, uh, availability of time, expecting too much of the teachers, so therefore they don't have an opportunity to be able to actually be a part of what we are seeing as a community. Remember, some students go to school and they get everything from school, which means it's a safer place. They're safer in the school than they are at home or in their communities. So it, it takes a collaborative approach, I think, for everybody to come together. So if we can change that, we can change. Dr. Beal, um, a, a quick follow-up question for you on that. Um, do you see that this year um, is more of a challenge than previous years? Uh, you know, knowing that many students uh, last year were remote and teachers um, weren't able to observe their students, so they're coming into this year um, not being with their students for over a year and then having to start from scratch in the observation. That is correct because um, they may not have had a chance, an opportunity to read their files or had a chance to, you know, to actually know their students because they've been gone for so long and behaviors have changed. Uh, it's going to be challenging for the teachers um, because immediately they have to follow their lesson plan. So, but we want them to be able to have an opportunity to be able to talk. We don't know what that child has experienced. We don't know the losses that have taken place in their personal life. And so children, I, I think they have like this, this period, I call it a two week period, where they go to school, they wear their new clothes and they're really, really good for the first two weeks of school. And by that third week, you'll see everything that's been, uh, something they've been holding inside to come out. Uh, that's when referrals go up, you know, significantly after that time period. So the teachers are going to have to probably work a little bit harder than they have in the past. Um, as far as trying to get to know their students and they may have to just take check-in times. You know, we're teaching uh, teachers how to just check in and tell me how you're feeling. And that may be all the way from elementary school all the way to high school. Because that, that one word that they share with the class could be very significant to tell you what's going on with them, you know, in their environment. So it's going to be difficult for all. Kids are going to love to be back in that, that brick and mortar, but after a while, everything else starts to um, to seem to have different challenges. So hopefully I've answered your question. Mm -hmm. Oh, you certainly have. Well, before we move on to the next topic, uh, the results are in from our poll of who or what is responsible for the mental health of students and young people. And overwhelmingly, uh, you all think, um, we're all we're all part of this, um, with, a, with a few uh, believing that it, it's the parents' responsibility. Um, now I want to shift the conversation a bit to the impact of COVID and civil unrest on educational institutions. Um, once Salgado, I'll start with you. Of the 70,000 students you serve at the city colleges, three out of four identify as minority students. What type of impact has the past 18 months had on people that have been historically marginalized? Yes, yeah, Susie, I will tell you, you know, our students under, under just an immense amount of pressure. They were under immense amount of pressure uh, before the pandemic. In fact, before the pandemic, we surveyed them and 54% of our students were uh, housing insecure in the previous 30 days. 44% were food insecure, 15% uh, 
um, were uh, reported as have been homeless in the previous 30 days. And so when you have that kind of pressure, and plus our students are parents as well, a good number of our parents, our students are income earners, uh, their income is critical to the household. And so when you add in the pandemic, you add in just the recognition of you as a person, right? You as a human being, your life matter, being of, of importance to society as a whole, you know, you, 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 you start to have a confluence of factors that uh, require us as institutions, quite frankly, just to, to do more, right? To do more and to be more and more, you know, responsive. We can talk a little bit about that. I know we are short on time and there'll be other opportunities, but, you know, I think the moment is calling for us because our students are calling for us uh, to, to do more in our institutions. Uh, and, and we can't do that alone. I'll just leave you with this. We can't do that. We would need broader society to be supportive of our institutions, taking on this role. Uh, and I'd say, you know, community colleges, because of who we serve, are uh, always going to need to have critical mental health supports for every student that needs them. And keep those the response in mind, because we will certainly return to that. Uh, Dr. Jose Torres, I want to turn to you. You were recently named interim CEO of Chicago Public Schools, but you've been in education your entire career. Now, much has been made of remote learning for students, parents, and teachers. What type of impact did this have on the education system as a whole? Yes, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so in, in one instance, some people have said that the impact of um, remote learning was basically accelerating 10 years into the future, bringing the future 10 years to the present because no one thought that they could create online instruction for everyone at the turn of a dime. At the same time, so educators, teachers, basically changed their job overnight. Uh, so great, great, uh, great work by them. Even if done poorly, it was a great sort of move in that direction. For students, it became a, a, a challenge, right? Because they, um, many did not have access to devices. There were Wi-Fi is uh, not evenly spread to uh, everyone. My own grandson, I remember seeing him uh, disconnected from the computer. The teacher was teaching on the computer and he was over there somewhere. Um, and I'm like, don't, aren't you supposed to be over here? So um, a learning loss happened. Unfinished learning is what we call it in Chicago Public Schools. Um, there's a huge amount of depression and anxiety that occurred for many of our students. So um, at the same time, educators who were doing all this great work teaching, they're also parents. So they were balancing their children on devices and of course, the parents who were not educators became teachers themselves. So they began to really create a great appreciation for, for teachers, right? It became like teachers are heroes kind of thing. At the systems level, I would say that it challenged our assumptions. Uh, um, obviously, we always knew that we provide essential services, but how do you provide nutrition and food to kids that are not coming to us? So that actually, it, unleashed creativity. Uh, in CPS, we actually did home deliveries in some cases in terms of food. Um, you saw buses with Wi-Fi devices sitting in neighborhoods so that the students can connect to them. And so um, 
Uh, it was certainly challenging. It challenged the entire system. Uh, and I think we'll, there will be some, some good takeaways from all of this that we'll, uh, we'll address later. So. Yeah, Dr. Torres, uh, for sure. I, I am a parent who um, has such a great appreciation for our CPS teachers. Uh, there were definitely days where I felt much better seeing another child melt down on camera, knowing that my child wasn't the only one doing that. So uh, appreciation to all of the teachers out there. Um, I, I want to turn now to the impact on, on people. Um, Amy, we'll start with you again. As a mental health advocate, former educator and mother, what impact do you see the pandemic and civil unrest having on people in general? Oh, Amy, I think you are on mute. So sorry. I, I think it's been extremely challenging for all of us. Um, I think that there's been an opportunity for people to be more honest and open about that, but we know that it's been particularly challenging for youth, for families, and educators. Uh, the educators themselves have had a really difficult year. The education of tens of millions of American kids have been interrupted in a way that we could have never imagined, and the separation from peers, isolation, and loneliness has taken a massive toll, as you've heard. Uh, you know, I have my own five kids and I was grateful that they had each other during this time to interact with. But, you know, for my oldest, who's 13, I could really see that missing piece and the impact that it was having on a daily basis. We've collectively been through this trauma of COVID and that for many was layered on top of the trauma of systematic racism. And so we're seeing that certain populations are having an even more difficult time and the fallout of this is not going to end simply because we are back in the school building. We're going to need to be addressing this for years to come. And I think that by addressing it in school, it's an opportunity for us to destigmatize some of the care that we all will need. And Dr. Beal, uh, your work with the Steve Fund and in professional practices focused on the mental health of students and people of color. Can you take a moment to share some of the disparities in education based on race that were exacerbated by the pandemic and civil unrest? Okay, one thing we have to look at, disparities go across all lines from the educational system to the mental health system and to any other system that people have. So people who are traditionally those that are considered to be part of not having or a part of being um, the opportunities or the availability of socioeconomics that may play an important part were mostly affected by the pandemic. The numbers were extremely high as far as deaths that took place during that time period. And so therefore families, you know, it's one thing to think that all of us, and I, I'm glad that it was mentioned by, by Dr. Torres, the fact that, you know, Wi-Fi, we took for granted, we thought that everybody, we just think that everybody has Wi-Fi, but not everyone had Wi-Fi. The lower socioeconomic stratus did not have Wi-Fi, nor did they have access to computers. So our school system had to hurry and try to get those things into 
the system so or into their home so they would be able to learn. Then you have a parent who had never had the opportunity to be with their child and did not know what it was like or may not have had an education themselves, trying to help their children at home. We had parents who had children with special needs that had difficulty and had never spent that much time with their child. So they didn't know what ADHD looked like eight hours a day. During the summertime, they tend to not give medication. So therefore, you know, everybody plays and it's not a reason to be structured. But at home, parents had difficulty making that happen. So, you know, history repeats itself unless you know what to do. So the Steve Fund felt that we needed to have opportunities for children to be able to talk and to be able to discuss and to be able to process. That's why the Wellbeing and Color program was developed. And you can see that it's attached in the, the link as well. And it, it, it's for teens and it's a peer-led program, which makes it so unique because it's a peer-led program along with the mental health professional talking about stigma. Because once again, stigmas play the role. And so even though someone may suffer, from a mental health concern, or they may have parents um, who have suffered, they don't want to talk about it. So it helps break the stigma and educates why we're here and, and what we can do. And then the social injustice that took place had a major impact on everyone. Not only people of color probably the most, we would think, but everybody was affected by the murders and things that took place and felt as though they needed to do something because the world stopped right then. Um, you know. At the time that that took place, we may have been in school or they may have just been told about it and it would have been a repeat, but they were actually able to watch it over and over and over. And that's called trauma because we've induced trauma now because we haven't had a chance to process it. So that's why the Wellbeing in Color program has allowed the kids, it's a five-part module, to be able to talk about how they feel about all these different things. And the LBGT community, you know, not being accepted or the bullying, all the things that happened in schools before. Um, you know, we are addressed, are new to those with things that had to be addressed or we would be even, I guess, less ahead of time because we're not there yet. We have a long way, but we're making progress. Yeah, and and once Salgado, you connect with people of all walks of life across the city. Um, it, you mentioned a little bit about this before, but uh, tell us more. What was the impact you witnessed for people in their communities? Well, what we saw was just the, also the beauty in community, when institutions and people respond uh, to each other. And we saw this from our uh, church communities, our CBOs, certainly we here at community colleges and our schools. And so what I saw, uh, you know, both at the initiation of the pandemic and with the racial reckoning is just that beauty of people coming together. On the other hand, that same group of folks has uh, been stretched quite a bit and is continuing to stretch itself. And so, you know, I do worry at the ground floor about the well-being of those institutions because the recovery from trauma and the recovery from uh, these past 18 months is going to take time. And we have to take a patient approach to investment of people and places and over uh, a more extended period of time if we're really going to be there for people uh, through uh, throughout the recovery and and uh, and, 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 and well-being. And Dr. Jose Torres, you've been involved in leadership at large institutions for much of your career. When something unprecedented impacts nearly everyone, in your experience, how do people respond? Well, uh, <clears throat> individually, right? So we experience it. Um, different ways and, and different people. I think fear is a big 
factor, especially with something as unknown as COVID has been. And uh, interestingly, what I hear a lot recently is, what, you're changing this, you're changing that. And my approach, having just come from a, the Illinois Math and Science Academy as the president, um, that's what scientists do. They change their mind once the facts change, the evidence changes, you change your, your, your behavior. So the other, I think another, uh, another factor has been adrenaline, right? And, and a bias for action. So I can tell you that CPS and Chicago Public Schools, the nutritional service team uh, uh, ensured that students could pick up meals every day. More than 40 million meals were served during the start of the pandemic. Uh, later on, uh, the district purchased, as we talked about, the lack of devices, 200,000 devices to aid in remote learning. Um, uh, we, ha we created a first-of-its-kind partnership called Chicago Connected, which provided high-speed uh, internet access to all low-income families at no cost for up to four, uh, four years. Uh, the district created a child learning hubs to make sure that children of essential workers, as well as families, uh, who needed support had a safe place to engage in remote learning. You remember hearing about wealthier families creating hubs for learning in their beautiful backyards. And, and so, but some of the other families couldn't do that. So we helped to, to support that. And finally, the CAPS, the facilities team, put all kinds of health and safety protocols in place, especially as we're, we're looking at coming back together. Um, a couple of other things that I would mention is that introverts like myself and believe me i'm an introvert meaning from the myers-briggs like i get my energy by going on walks by myself journaling bike riding by myself i don't like to be in in, in groups that go bike riding I, I i it wasn't that bad for me except that seven or eight zoom meetings into the day um it it it, it was just draining and extroverts felt the other way they were like anxious for human contact um, and both of those areas created empathy right for others so like you know i became very empathetic to our, my, our students who were sitting in seven to eight uh, classes a day so we changed that at, at IMSA to to say look let's go to a block schedule and we minimize the hours uh, or the minutes that kids had to be uh, in front of the computer and finally i want to say one thing about the uh, the, the racial uh, reckoning some of us who were people of color had to come to, to work the next day after Floyd and after all of these massacres and put on a mask, if you will, and, and pretend that everything was okay with ourselves because we were going through that trauma too. And so um, we just need to, uh, again, create patience and compassion with each other as we move through this process. And, and working off of uh, Dr. Torres's response, um, I, I want us to think of the responses and outcomes of the past 18 months. Um, and the, this question is for each of you, and, and we'll start with Dr. Beal and then go to Amy Kennedy and then Juan and then um, Jose. Uh, so the question, you know, when the rug was yanked out from under us, many institutions and people responded and some achieved positive outcomes. Um, Dr. Beal, can you share some of those outcomes from your perspective? Okay, one thing I can say that we that we got out of the pandemic is the fact that the conversations that we're having right now became more frequent. Mental health was no longer something, even though it, it still has a stigma associated with it, we're working on that, and that's gonna take a minute to, to, to dismay. 
But the fact that we're having conversations right now and people were more open to talk about how they were feeling, um, hotlines were available, helplines that I worked on. There were a lot of things that we actually did so that people had an opportunity to talk and to be able to share how they were feeling. Because people that had never experienced a mental health, never experienced what they thought was depression or anxiety until the pandemic. Um, parents um, who had to take on responsibility, who may have lost their jobs, you know, there was a lot of stress that was going on. So we were talking about how to handle stress. What are some of the things that you do? And so, you know, even though Dr. Torres said he didn't like, he likes to ride his bicycle by himself, you know, I was saying, go outside, ride your bike, you know, walk around the neighborhood. You don't have to go far. Uh, create special time. So we were helping people take care of themselves. So that was a positive thing. Not only did they know that they could talk, I heard teenagers say my, my mental health is just as important as my physical health. And when you have a teenager says that, you know, that's really an accomplishment. Um, that's like we really are getting there. So now they really understand. Um, so all the positivity that uh, that came out, families learned to coexist, although there were some issues that we had a high incident on the negative part. The families had to learn how to reconnect or do things that they didn't. So we were almost going back to the old school of sitting down, having dinner together, whereas, you know, no longer in a tele, you know, in front of the television. And because they had to share, a lot of families of, of lesser abilities uh, had to share things that brought them closer together, the kids. And to be able, I heard Amy said she has five kids. So they, they were probably talking to each other more than they were fighting with each other. Well, I'm sure there were times that there were parts. She smiled. <laughs> like, yeah, you think so? You weren't here. But I mean, the ability to be able to take the positive was the fact that we are having these conversations about mental health. We are trying to remove the stigma. We are talking about what you need to do. We're going to talk about the signs and symptoms. So I think that's the most um, positive thing. Uh, and the change happened. Change happened so fast that we didn't have a chance to prepare. And normally human beings, we don't like change, but change happened. And so therefore I kept, would always tell parents, children are resilient. And you know, they're the most resilient people on the earth. So they will learn how to start over. It's just adults that have difficulty with that. So uh, I think the forefront of knowing the need, addressing the need, which is what we're doing right now and actually trying to make a difference is what I think the most positive thing with what happened as a result of the COVID-19. And we're still in it though. Yeah, we certainly are. Uh, Amy Kennedy, how about you? You know, I've seen the same flexibility that we talked about with teachers being able to transition to online learning uh, is what we're seeing with mental health. And I think that's really a result of the pandemic. So knowing that there is a shortage in providers, seeing how quickly we've adapted to telemental health, to peer supports, to online support, uh, companies even using AI as ways to try to intervene early is a really big transition that's gonna help bolster, I think, the workforce that is there, as well as call out that we need more people on staff as students return. So, you know, we've joined forces with the Hopeful Futures campaign and it outlines kind of the things that we need to see, but that advocacy movement has really been bolstered by this moment. And I think that's going to lead to better outcomes for people for decades to come. And Juan Salgado? 
Yeah, we transitioned to remote instruction and remote services within a week's time. We got devices to every student that needed them within a two week time period, including MiFi hotspots. Uh, you know, the campus community, we learned a lot about ourselves, right? And what we we're capable of doing uh, relatively short period of time. And now we've extended services that didn't exist pre-pandemic, uh, post-pandemic, including all of the virtual capabilities that uh, we have uh, today. We went ahead and uh, forgive, we've forgiven the debt of over 17,000 students and said, just forget about it, come right back in. We've paid off debt for students that uh, had debt at the end of the semester, all during uh, that pandemic. We're doing things that we weren't doing before, right? That when you look at them, you say, boy, we really need to be thinking as a society, how do we sustain these things? We just opened up 60 high demand occupations, the most you know, uh, in demand careers. And we said, you know what? Every one of these programs is gonna be free to any Chicago and needs them today. Those little kinds of, you know, uh, nudges, if you will, and it's outreach. It's saying to people, you matter, you care, we are here for you, and we are going to systematically remove barriers rather than systematically put obstacles in your way. Yeah, and I think great. that's what's different. That's what we're thinking about as a society and as leaders of institutions. And Dr. Torres. Yeah, I, I would start by by um, pointing the obvious, right? Here we are doing a national panel, all from the comfort of our own offices or homes. Whereas before we would have had to figure out how to get to the place, bring everyone together, and all of a sudden, now we can, this is more acceptable to, to do these kinds of things. Um, I think uh, specifically uh, some of the things that, that happened for us is that the, in fact, there was less bullying in schools. Some black and brown students in, in research have said that they, they, they felt safer because they were not in hallways. Um, there's definitely been uh, some bullying electronic, but uh, you know, there's been less of the physical bullying. There's been sex, less sexual abuse in schools because there were no people there, right? And so there has been some electronic issues going on, but, but uh, between students primarily, but not as much with adults and students. Um, online learning allows for opportunities for shy students to put in the chat uh, and get involved in other ways. And one thing that I think we will never uh, go back to from is that there's been a robust community involvement. So we've had town halls with parents, town halls with employees. And these are things that we want to keep because uh, it gives people voice and it gives, us, it gives them access. I already mentioned the one-on-one -on -one devices that we were able to provide to CPS families, uh, Chicago Connected, the high-speed internet, and uh, teachers and principals, and you know, first graders, I think Susie, you said you have a little one. I mean, they become more tech savvy, right? And in a world that will continually be more tech uh, uh, ubiquitous in terms of, of what technology uh, uh, creates for us. So I, I think there's been some positive things um, and we should and we should really accentuate and uh, amplify those rather than saying, oh, how what terrible 18 months we've experienced together. Thanks for that. And, and before we head into our final topic of today, we've got one more poll for everyone. Should leaders prioritize mental health supports within schools? Do you strongly agree? Agree? You're neutral. 
Do you disagree or strongly disagree? So go ahead and weigh in on that now, and I'll come back to you, Amy Kennedy. Um, as we look ahead, what should leaders do to invest in mental health services and supports for young people? This is really the moment. They have to really push schools to ensure comprehensive mental health systems are in place and that they have to give schools the resources and help to do that. We know that there has been dollars set aside through the rescue plan, but schools need to know that it's gonna be sustainable so that when they do put all of the pieces together for a comprehensive plan, that the funding will continue to be there. And part of what that means is that state leaders have the requirements in place that we can reimburse through Medicaid without an IEP. We know that that's been made available, but each state needs to do the work so that that can be in place. All, not all students will have an IEP that need the services and schools have barriers to getting that help in place. Not allowing telehealth to be reimbursed in schools has been a barrier and we can set all of that up to make it easier for schools to provide mental health services instead of putting in um, just what the students in a small group might need. We need to increase screenings, prevention, and really lift up the voices that we're hearing today, as well as those of students, because we see that there's a growing number of students who are able to advocate for themselves and teachers who are talking about their own workplace mental health. So lifting their voices up and making sure that state leaders hear that. We were fortunate to be able to present with the Lieutenant Governor of Delaware, who brought together stakeholders from the state to have these conversations about what's missing and what's going well in the state school systems. And we can do that in each state as we look at the reports that are coming out and analyze where we're going to go forward. And one way that we can continue to push is through the Department of Education. Kennedy Forum, along with CLASP and a hundred other organizations, wrote to the Education Secretary and urged them to release detailed guidance on opportunities for the funds to support systematic change in student mental health. So we really need to push for the technical assistance so that school administrators are able to utilize those dollars in an effective way. Yeah, it's certainly a moment for change. Um, Dr. Beal, we know there will be incredibly difficult challenges as many return to in-person learning. You recently appeared on the Steve Funds podcast, Speak On It, in which you discussed success and what it means to students. Can you share what success means for students as, as we head into the 2021 school year? What a great question. Yes, that podcast was trying to give students or listeners a possibility of how to create success for them um, and being able to control their own objectives and goals of what they wanted to do in life. Now the success we'll have to create for them because things have changed to the degree. Um, success for students in 2020, 2021, 22 year would be for them to be able to stay in school. Um, for, the, for the, the fear of having the pandemic interrupt their, uh, I wish we could give them a, a steadfast answer that they will be able to make it this year, but there's a lot of fear associated with that and anxiety. Um, success, the ability to decrease their stress, to learn how to actually de to self-regulate, uh, to, to practice certain techniques to, would be very successful. I think that students could, could teach themselves and be able to do and be able to learn. Academics will come 
if the mind, body, and soul are in one accord. And so if they're not, then they know how important their mental health is, and we're telling them how important it is for them to be mentally healthy in order to be able to have an educational successful year. So success, I think, for these for this school year would be able for students to be able to know that we're supporting them. We are going to listen to them. Um, we're going to help them achieve their goals. You know, hopefully uh, I think I saw parents last year create all types of things, you know, because of proms and things that were missed. Um, I recommended that people have them in their backyard. Uh, create a, um, a little stand. Uh, I have all this creativity that, that came out and you saw all types of drive-by birthday parties and things of that nature, which became in the yard signs. I wish I had a yard sign business. Um, that really <laughs> viral for a while. Uh, so I think success with them would be giving them a sense of security. And see, children need structure and they need security. So that's why if we give them those things back, I think that would be a successful year for them to our ability and what we're able to control. Yeah. Well, you know, schools and colleges got an infusion of federal re uh, COVID relief dollars. Um, Juan Salgado, what steps is the City Colleges taking to support the mental health of their students and communities? Yes, yeah, Susie. We, so we, we have established uh, wellness centers at every college. We had those established pre-pandemic and we're resourcing those uh, uh, wellness centers more. We're doing more and more uh, professional development of our entire faculty and staff. Uh, to uh, be able to identify and refer uh, students that are in need of those particular services. We just launched an effort called Be Well Chicago that extends our work uh, to various neighborhoods uh, that we work in, workshops, uh, also peace circles that are being had uh, in our colleges. We, we initiated a Caring Campus initiative now at uh, three of our colleges that will be at all seven colleges. This is an evidence-based uh, program that really gets us to ensure that our students feel like they belong, right? And feel like they're cared for, and therefore know that the institution has a set of resources for them. Uh, and uh, our counseling teams have also initiated uh, an effort called Project Safe that is really intended to, you know, uh, secure a free, uh, a fear-free environment, right? Part of what we're up against is uh, people are uh, afraid, they have anxiety, and we need to break through that anxiety to make sure that uh, they're coming for services and taking full advantage of everything we're putting together. And Dr. Torres, same question to you. What is CPS doing to support the mental health of the school community? Well, we're, we're encouraging our families and our classrooms to start with the heart this uh, the beginning of the year. So let's put aside this curriculum for a minute and really develop relationships. In, we, you know, we have to teach kids how to do school. I was in a second grade classroom today. Those kiddos have not been in school for a year and a half. So they only had half, you know, half a year of kindergarten. And so um, they're entering in as though they were kindergarten. Uh, Pre-pandemic, we had some things that were expanding. We had behavioral health teams that uh, support in schools where they screen the child and they connect them with uh, communities and interventions around social and emotional uh, uh, supports. We have uh, small group interventions where uh, we had trained a thousand counselors to provide trauma-informed, you know, particular programs like Bounce Back, Sparks. We um, have huge relationships with partnerships and, and CBOs around individual mentoring as well as counseling. 
Um, we have over 200 registered partners in our in our community, and also provided a lot of training. Um, as has been said here, teachers are educators, and they they're relatively uh, concerned moving into an area that they may not feel com uh, comfortable in. But they don't need to be experts. They need to be able to identify signs. And so we've provided some training on developing uh, for us to develop tra uh, trauma sensitive schools. And then with our with the new what's new this year is we've increased staffing and high impact access to nurses, psychologists, and social workers. Uh, we're expanding the number of schools receiving mental health uh, mentoring or and mentoring partners. Uh, we're assigning uh, specialized people to our networks to support the schools in those mm -hmm. network school areas. And uh, finally, we're creating healthy uh, healing centered projects where basically we're increasing trauma training for our teacher, our staff, creating physical spaces for de-escalation, increasing training and support for partners. And so, I mean, the list goes on, uh, Susie. Uh, so there's a, a concerted effort to provide scaffolds and supports both for the teachers and for the, and, and for, for the students. Yeah. And we just have a few minutes left here for, for questions, um, but before we get to that, here are the results of our poll. Should leaders prioritize mental health supports within schools? And overwhelmingly, uh, many of you either strongly agreed or agreed. Um, now I wanna turn to um, a, a question from our audience. Uh, Bernie Dime asks, um, or says, I fear that our focus on mental health is tied to the current events do you believe that this will continue when the pandemic is under control? And how do we ensure that this will happen? Not sure who wants to try to take a stab at that. Well, uh, you know, I'm happy to just say that I think the teacher training, educator training, as well as all staff that comes in contact with students will have a long term impact. But we also really do have to focus on getting that funding to be there because as Dr. Torres mentioned, you know, being able to train the teachers to recognize the signs is important, but there has to be a pipeline of services that you can refer them to. And when we see somebody that's struggling, do we have that in place? We know 988 was passed, but is the infrastructure going to be built out so that when we see someone that is struggling, we can refer them for culturally competent care, that we know that they can get the level of care that they need at that moment. And I think that's going to come into play when we have strong advocates continue to push for this movement, not only in schools, but in our communities. Thanks for that, Amy. Um, we've got another question from uh, Sunny Bogdan. Um, Sunny asks, uh, I, I'm a healthcare worker. What are some suggestions you might make to us to utilize our roles in helping children? Um, this seems like a question for Dr. Beale, maybe. <laughs> well, actually, I think that it's important that you, you let them know that you're there for them. And if you have the opportunity to be able to meet with small groups, or say encouraging words, or encourage them to share, uh, I'm, if you're a healthcare worker within the school system, uh, within, you know, after school, you can have programs and develop programs uh, where, where kids can have, you know, um, a round circle where they can just talk about how their day has been or talk about things that are actually bothering them. The more we're able to give them a level of comfort about expressing how they feel and what their mental health isn't like, 
for them, the more you'll find that the whole, this next generation will be far better than one prior to. Uh, I don't think we're going to go back uh, in time. I think we can't help but go forward and realizing because of what we've experienced and all of us experienced something during this pandemic, we'll be able to be better as a society and hope. You know, this is not just a speech to say, you know, we need, but we do need the services and we do need, it has shown us that we are going to have far more things that we're going to, the schools are going to be uh, addressed with that we did not anticipate. Um, when the pandemic first happened, you know, I was looking, trying to see what did they do psychologically back a hundred years ago? Well, there was no documentation, but our generation, we're going to leave documentation. We're going to have where people can look and see how did we overcome and how did we work through. Um, I was listening to all the things in the Chicago public school. I said, well, maybe I need to move to Chicago because <laughs> you guys are, are actually doing a lot, but there's so much more to be done. We're, you know, we're all doing things and we're all coming together. And I think it's important that the funding, as Amy has talked, we have to make sure that, that comes into the schools. You know, I'm in the third largest school district in the country and our psychological services suffer. I mean, there's a lot that needs to, to happen. So the funding that, that's available needs to make sure that we are earmarking it toward uh, mental health and continued mental health and doing things and thinking outside the box. Um, we know we're no longer in a box and we're no longer having to because we're able to telehealth practice overnight. I had never practiced before um, on telehealth. I got certification in two in less than two two weeks. I was doing okay, how does this work? How you know what programs do we do? Um, so and the the numbers increase of attendance because not only did the mom not have to leave to bring one person in, everybody could come in and the family received help. So, and engaging the families, I think, is are very important too. You yeah, can't just definitely. take the child without working with the family. Okay, I'll stop. Uh, thank you for that, Dr. Beal. We will have to wrap it right there. Uh, I'd like to thank, of course, Dr. Janice Beal, Amy Kennedy, Juan Salgado, and Dr. Jose Torres for your insight and perspective and for all the work you do to advocate for the mental health supports for students, parents, teachers, and their communities. And thank you to Patrick Kennedy and the Kennedy Forum for highlighting these important conversations. Uh, you'll receive a link to the video for this conversation and additional resources soon. Now, I'd like to hand it off to Dr. Teresa Garate, board member of the Kennedy Forum Illinois, for some closing remarks. Thank you, Susie. Um, and on behalf of the board of directors for the Kennedy Forum, I wanna thank all of you for joining us today, especially thank you to Dr. Torres and Chancellor Salgado for always answering my calls. <laughs> um, been, we've been colleagues and friends for many years and they're always there to support the work that we do. So thank you all for, for joining us today. Uh, just a few closing remarks. Um, you know, today's conversation is very important, um, but I think to Dr. Beal and others who mentioned this, it should not just be a conversation now, it should be a conversation all the time. As a past special education teacher, when I started my career out th over 30 years ago, uh, working with students with emotional disabilities, it was a big issue then and now it's everywhere. So thank you for joining. Thank you for our sponsors for supporting this conversation. And I encourage everyone, to understand that mental health and substance use disorders are chronic disease. They are a, a, a disease of the brain, an illness like any other. And I think that there's so much stigma that's related to this. So the more that we can share our stories, the more that we can talk about it, uh, the better we will be as a society and understanding that this needs to be treated. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I hope you continue to support the Kennedy Forum. Uh, you can always make a donation 
to our work. Um, we are uh, a small and mighty team of people, uh, great staff and volunteer board of directors that have been uh, had the privilege to work with Patrick over the last six years. Our annual meeting is coming up in October, October 6th and October 13th. We hope that you will join us. I remember planning the very first one in Chicago six years ago. Uh, so it, we've come a long way and we have a great following, but please continue to support our work and continue to have this conversation. Um, on behalf of everyone, I think um, enjoy the rest of your day and thank you for being with us today. Um, and hopefully you have learned something, uh, heard something, and you will take it back to your communities and to your organizations.